0: prophecy and preparedness and now your host the editor-in-chief of christianmoney.com and the author of more than 30 books jim Paris. all right welcome to our guest segment we're super excited to have her back with us the book is called hunting the unabomber and uh, Lise wheel is with us of course uh, she is an attorney former federal prosecutor you may remember her from her years on fox news and uh, Lise wheel good to have you back with us tonight
1: It's great to be with you, Jim. Thanks so much for having me back.
0: Yeah. Now, I have to tell you, this book is... I, I love the Manson book and I thought you couldn't top that. And then I read this book and <laughs> you pick, you just picked the greatest cases because even though I remember all of this happening, I was old enough to remember all of this. Unlike the Manson case, I was very young when all of that happened, but I was old enough to remember the Unabomber and Ted Kaczynski and all sure, of this. And sure. I'm from Chicago. So there's that connection there. Um, but there's so much about this case that I just I I don't know if I just didn't remember it or I never knew it to begin with. But I want to start by talking about Ted Kaczynski as a a person, because what a fascinating guy he gets in. Is it that he got into Harvard at like 15 or 16 years old? Tell us about that. 16
1: years old. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of known as a mathematics wunderkind, you know, very tested, very smart on the IQ test, very high on the IQ test at a young age and there was some uh disagreement in the family about whether he should go to Harvard at such a young age, but he did go at age sixteen, very young to go to Harvard, and was sort of sequestered along with the other young boys that got in at that age, which is probably the wrong thing for Harvard to do, but they did that. Um and, you know, had sort of a a, a kind of normal growing up, um you know, childhood had a, a younger brother who just adored him, um, David, who plays a very important role later in his life. But and um, you know, but was always kind of this inquisitive, antisocial. I think we would put that label on him now in you know modern day social you know jargon. We'd say antisocial even at a young age. And then trotted off to Harvard. Went on from there to. Teach um, mathematics. Uh, students didn't like him because he had no interest in the students. He was much more interested in his own research or whatever, and so he didn't. He didn't last very long at
0: that. In fact, but I had uh least an odd duck. Lisa, I had a follower of mine on Facebook uh, who commented yeah. uh, today saying that th- this that Kaczynski was his math teacher in, in Iowa.
1: <gasps> oh no! Yeah,
0: and he would really? he. Com- yeah, he commented that he was like a student teacher at his high school and that uh something like, you know, he was really into math, but he didn't really click with anybody. And I, I'm almost wondering, like, based on your description, um, maybe he was on the autistic spectrum or something, you know, extremely bright guy, but had like zero social skills. I mean, would that sum it up that he just I mean, did he date? Did he have any type of a social life?
1: Well, interesting that you bring up the dating thing. He tried to, and I talk about that a little bit in the book. He tried to, but, you know, very awkwardly, like he tried to date somebody at one of the jobs that he had after teaching and uh, went up to somebody, tried to kind of date her. She didn't take it the right way. And then, you know, put up at the equivalent of sort of nasty notes on the wall about her and tried to malign her. Um so his dating really didn't go anywhere. And you can see this most markedly when his brother, again, this, you know, brother they were so, co- it was so close to, later on in life, this is now, I'm progressing a couple of decades, when Kaczynski's already out in this lone cabin in Montana, he'd given up teaching, he'd would he gone off the grid, he'd, he, you know, built this cabin in Montana and was by himself. And he learns of his brother getting married and he just excoriates the brother in these letters for getting married. You know, how could you break this bond of basically a virginity? How could you break this bond that we had and, you know, marry this, you know, ex- expletive, expletive? Meanwhile, he'd never met this young woman. So he was just um, jealous that his, j- brother j- found, his brother found,
0: his brother found love and he didn't find love. Um but going back to, to to his brilliance, a hundred and sixty-seven IQ, wh- which is a documented genius, I also found it yes. fascinating. There are multiple, multiple published Papers by Kaczynski on the topic, different math theories that he either invented or 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 further clarified. I mean, stuff like way above my pay grade. I, I probably I don't even understand the title of these uh, papers that he wrote. But this <laughs> but this guy becomes a PhD by the age of twenty five. Is teaching at Berkeley in California, a no certi- slouch, no certified slouch. genius, right. multiple published papers on all. The these different math theories. I mean, he was truly off the charts as a brilliant man within the world of math, wasn't he?
1: Yes, all of that is true. uh, Absolutely. But throughout, never was able to make attachments with other people. So, yeah, he attached to numbers and science and math, but not to other people. And, you know, there have been. Theorists that have gone before me that have said, "Well, you know he never attached to his mother, he was sick at a very young age, had some kind of illness and pneumonia or something like that that put him in the hospital for a little bit, and he was you know detached from his mother at that point, and maybe that caused you know a severe kind of attachment that he could never attach to other people i I don't know you know again, you have a brother that grew up in the same household. That maybe didn't test at the IQ level that Kaczynski did, not maybe didn't, didn't test, didn't test at the same IQ level, but went on to live a, other than his brother's, you know, atta- the attachment to his brother, went on to live a normal life, married and no, no, no. Uh, any kind of sense of any of this kind of craziness, and I would call this craziness, and um, his
0: brother yeah. was we know his he brother could. was an extremely normal person and even extremely yes. more extremely moral playing moral. a part playing a part moral. later in That's the story point. of helping the authorities to catch Ted Kaczynski, but I want to go back to the name the Unabomber, which Kaczynski called himself i believe f c but the FBI branded yes. him the Unibomber, which stands for University and airline uh, bomber. Isn't that the the where the term came from? Unibomber, right. university and airline. Right. So did he ever right. con- did because he ever consider himself the quote unquote unibomber, or was he always referring to himself in a different way, the FC or other monikers?
1: He referred to himself as FC, and of course. The FBI, and it wasn't just FBI, postal, U.S. You know, postal Service, uh, ATF, all of these agencies working together, state and federal and local, the FBI was sort of the lead driver, didn't know what FC was, right? They didn't know that, that it, the Unabomber, which they came to, as you said, give them the moniker, um, was a person, persons, a male, a female, a sect, you know, a group. They, they had no idea. But FC started writing these things, and eventually the manifesto, which of course was published much later on. But imagine this—this this was almost a 20-year, 18-plus-year manhunt for some somebody, somebodies that the FBI had no idea what their motive was or who this person obviously was. All they had to go on was the type of bombings that were targeted and as you said universities and an airline were the targets so hence the moniker una bomber and so they tried from that to think of okay what are the commonalities there to see if we can find a a motivation for the bombing and many of them were to universities Tangentially, you know, it wasn't always a university professor that would open the packages. It could be somebody in the mail room, right? Because it wouldn't always, the package wouldn't always get to the re- intended recipient. It would sometimes explode in the mail room, but they were still going to universities. And so what the FBI sort of pieced together after a while was, you know, it's going to places of higher learning consistently, whether it's Yale, or whether it's out in California, which a lot of them were going to, and that's why the Unabomber Task Force was set up in San Francisco, where my main source became for so the book came out of San Francisco. Um, they were set to universities, except for the one airline that, that we talked about. And even the airline, it was like, okay, was it disgruntled airline employee? Was it somebody high up in the airline you know industry that was trying? Was it you know one airline after the other that was trying to you know. Get knocked, you know, walk one airline out of out of commission. You know, was it something like that? They were trying to look for motivation because even though you don't have to prove motivation at trial in front of a jury, we all know as human beings that we look for motivation to figure out who the person might be. Right? Motive means and and, and opportunity are the things that prosecutors and investigators look for, and you just they couldn't find that motivation. Uh, until the kind of the manifesto provided that, which is, which is, you know, science is bad and and technology is bad.
0: What I find so fascinating about many of these cases, the Manson case, uh, your last book, and now this book, these, this happened before the internet. And, and I, I really, I, I just have this, this feeling like, I don't know that this could happen today because we have the Internet and because it's so we have so many more ways of tracking people, uh, not only like putting out, you know, nationwide bulletins. uh, You've got, you know, the uh, Amber Alerts and cell phones are used to triangulate and find locations. And I'm not sure that in in the way that we're so careful now with mail. Uh, Tell us at the time how how was mail handled? Like, could you just take a package that was not a flat package, which I know the post office always handles like a flat, like like a letter or a flat, right. a document different than a box. Um a, a, a box is looked at differently. But today, post nine eleven and post the Unabomber boxes, you just can't drop those in mail uh, drops without that going through a person. Back when he was operating, could you drop a, a box in in just a a regular corner mailbox? Yeah. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And in fact, that's you know, so many changes were made post Unabomber because of things like that. You could drop a box off. In fact, he would take a bus and take a bus to a place fr- from his Lincoln, Montana cabin, and and have this box wrapped up and take a box and drop it off or deliver it. Uh, more often, he actually delivered it to a place where it was then picked up and then brought in. And people weren't necessarily as careful with the mail as they are now. Although during times when he was bombing, people were essentially fairly careful and still, you know, they would, people opened their mail and he would make it look like it was, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he was very, he was very, very, very good at what he did and he became more and more proficient at his art, if you would. And when you ask about, well, would the, would the internet catch him now? May a, a guy like him maybe, but here's the here's the problem, and here's the, the concern to me is that he he went so far off the grid, and there are places still in this country where you can go off the grid. I mean, his was a little place outside of Lincoln, Montana
0: where which I don't Montana. even know where I don't even know where Lincoln where Lincoln Montana is so give me even give me another <laughs> well, give me another not, city that that's near yeah
1: first of all oh I I don't know I don't think it's near Butte I mean um, Montana, just, by the way Montana is it is a beautiful state it is it's got some gorgeous cities I've never it been is, there but I've I've seen the pictures but
0: is it like in the movie where he is like Grizzly Adams out in the middle of literally nowhere with this tiny cabin, which I've seen, I've seen the cabin at some museum I yeah. was visiting in, in DC years ago. I saw, I saw the cat, just this tiny, it's like a shed. Yep. I mean, it's almost like a shed oh, in yeah. your yard. And, and I mean, was he literally living full time in that little tiny place?
1: He was literally living full time in that tiny little place. Wow. And I kind of make the point in the book that he's, he lived all those years in that tiny little place, which is about the size of his cell now. <laughs> <in> Colorado, <laughs> ironic, <auto Mexican> security, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of ironic. But so okay, so he so he lived. Let we'll in give him more detail about it. He lived in that little place in that little cabin, which had no plumbing. Right, so he had to do all of his little, you know, natural things outside. Um, he cooked for himself and everything with no plumbing. And he made his bomb. This was so, um, infuriating, so frustrating for, to find, to capture him. He made his bomb out of various things that he would find from junkyards. Why is that important? Because there's no way after you found those things from junkyards and then scraped off whatever kind of markings there might still be left on any of the particulates that you put into the bomb, there's no way then to Once the FBI, once the bomb has exploded, done, done dirty thing, to then to the bomb technician to take that, bring it back to Quantico, you know, where the FBI has its main lab, and those technicians in Quantico to be able to say, oh, this part was manufactured at this particular, particular manufacturer, this particular place, this particular battery here, because they were, they were bought from a store, usually. You know, usually when people buy bomb, they go to, they may not go to the same store. It's not like they go, okay, I'm going to, uh, make a bomb and I'm going to go to my local Radio Shack and buy everything I need from that radio. They're not dumb. Well, sometimes they are. We like the dumb ones. But, you know, they'll go to different places. And they'll, you know, they'll mix it up. But he didn't buy anything from any place. He got it all from junkyards. Wow. So there was no place, there was no way to track that down. So when you say internet tracking him, if you're living off the grid and you buy all your components from a junkyard and you're so, and this is where his brilliance come in, comes in, but you're so smart that you can, because of your brilliance, use your wicked brilliance. To put together with those, you know, rather crass materials, still a very proficient and deadly bomb. And they got, by the way, deadlier and deadlier over the course of this nearly 18 years. He got better and better at doing what he wanted to do. Um, that even in today's, and here's the point I was trying to make, even in today's world, with our great technology, would still be very hard to find. You know, like there was that bombing um, a year or two ago in in Texas. Remember that? Yeah. Where it was a politically motivated bombing, and the guy was basically doing it out of his, a truck. And they were able to. The FBI was able to. F- FBI and ATF were able to track that guy down. His last name is escaping right now, but it'll come to me. Um, within. Hours, days if not hours, because he had bought them in, in, you know, places that were clearly able to, Quantico was clearly able to track that down. He was on the Internet and boom, they were greeting him at the door. Like we got you, dude. And they had it. It was done. It was over. Do we know how Ted
0: Kaczynski was able
1: and the motivation was clearly political?
0: Do we know how he was able to learn to build these bombs? I mean, it's one thing to be a math genius and to be a one sixty seven IQ but it's another thing to learn how to build bombs and not blow yourself up in the process of learning how to build the first few bombs. Yeah. Uh, how did he learn how to do this? I mean, I would think this would be extremely difficult. I mean, it'd be one thing to create a bomb that maybe you set up on the border of your property and there's a tripwire for it. But to create a bomb that is stable enough to go through the mail system, maybe hundreds or thousands of miles and not explode Well, it's being bounced around in the mail trucks and then explode when it's opened. Um, Even in today's world and with today's technology, that sounds to be that's Uh, that's a very tall order. How did he learn how to do that? Yeah, he read about it.
1: Uh, He, you know, he he read up. I mean, uh, he, he, he learned. He taught himself. And again, he didn't have the internet to do that, but he had books and learning, and that was one thing. Um, makes an important point about books because I asked uh, one of the one of my main sources for the book. I said, "Hindsight's 2020," but you know, we all credit the manifesto for really giving you guys, uh, and and David, the brother, for helping you solve the case, and you have to say that that's true. But but for the manifesto and David, do you think with the help of your Internet and your computers and your – not scratch Internet, your computers and everything that you were developing in your computer mainframe, because that was – the FBI was having to bring – Unibram brought the FBI and their computer system up by years and years and years and years and they needed to be they were way so far behind and that was actually you make
0: the point in the book that benefit you make the point in the book that several of these bombings were not even considered connected until later when janet reno who was the attorney general Put together a system for, for all of this information to be shared. And then they started saying, wait a minute, this isn't, these aren't separate, uh, events. These are right. all connected. And that was the beginning of the end for Ted Kaczynski, really, when they started looking at him as a mass serial killer in that way.
1: When they started, exactly, when they started putting things together. And so my source said, you know, please, I, I know that this makes us sound good and everything, but, we think we would have caught him um, within six months, and using the computer um, computerization and all the technology that we had, uh, ironically he would have been caught by technology. And I said, "How?" He said, "Because he was going into Lincoln. He, he he didn't make friends or anything like that, but he was going into Lincoln and to the local library, and he was asking for certain books that were." unusual. And it didn't really give me any more detail than that. I think it's still classified, but they were unusual. And those were, would have and were getting uh tracked and would have been put into that computerization system. And within six months, we would have had an agent or two out there to see who this katet Kaczynski guy is Who's asking for these library
0: books? These books titled like "How to Build How to Build a Bomb" uh, this weekend. You know the the three day guide to building a mail bomb. Uh, But but he was sort of (laughs) he was sort of cloaking himself though at the at the library though he did a lot of other reading. I had read that he would go to the library. And in particular would request to read all of the classics uh, you know, in their original languages as well. So I mean he's reading, you know, Greek literature in Greek, and I mean just uh he was, I guess, revered at the library as like uh, just a great patron and reader of of great literature. And many of the books had to be like brought in from other libraries that he was requesting, which of course that is something libraries will do if they're a part of a group, but maybe because he was reading a lot of other books like that, these books he was reading, maybe that gave him the knowledge of the bomb building didn't raise as much attention if they were solely the only books he was looking at. Maybe that's the case.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I think the people there kind of saw him, As a loner and sort of, but you know that makes it it didn't create any real red flags because it's Lincoln, Montana. A lot of people come there to be alone, right? You don't go there if you don't go to. It's not like you're going to Manhattan. Yeah, you're going there.
0: (laughs) Loners' paradise. I mean, probably can't even find it on on the map. Now tell us about the hoodie picture because. everybody knows about this iconic picture. You got the hoodie and the glasses in this picture. And when the picture came out, I think people were fascinated, like, wow, that's the Unabomber. But then the second reaction was like, well, are you kidding me? I mean, who doesn't look like that? I mean, just the idea of a hoodie with sunglasses, that, that was the best the FBI could do, but it was enough that they put it out there. Did that, did that raise public attention um, to the point that that helped to catch him with that that sketch, which I think was not, I personally didn't think it was helpful. I think it could have been anybody, but it did make people start looking for him at least, or considering, hey, this could be someone I know.
1: Exactly, and that was the first sort of sketch that we had as a, as a nation of what this guy could look like. It was the first eyewitness who said she saw somebody delivering a package. And so immediately everybody, you know, the FBI already glommed onto her. What did he look like? I I remember seeing that picture. You know, you said you were old enough. I was, too. I remember seeing that picture uh, of this man in the hoodie with the sunglasses. And he doesn't really, when you see him at the arrest picture, he doesn't really look anything like that. But I've got pictures and looked at pictures of him much younger back in his, to think about your student, um, you know, your Facebook friend, your student. When he was uh, a teacher, for example, there he's much he does. He's got a little mustache, Hmm. a little mustache going, and it's kind of a little curly hair going. Now he wouldn't be wearing the sunglasses, obviously, but. For, could look like you. now of course you could look like your you know your cousin Fred too but, um, <laughs> it's like the d.b you know, cooper least,
0: pictures that i look like d.b cooper right, most right. of the right. time when i'm at the beach I, I that's my my look the the sunglasses and the hat so it, it but it but it was it, it it is a picture that just burns in it, in our memories right i mean that picture wasn't it on right. the cover of time magazine that's, and and like almost yes, every newspaper had that
1: too and I'll, Yes. And what you, what you are, are bringing up there with a the picture, which by the way, my, my kids even remembered when I said the Unabomber, what does it recall for you? They said that picture. They said manifesto and they said, wasn't there a cabin? You know, yeah. and they're in their twenties. So to me, it was like, okay, cause I want to know, like, what do people remember about the Unabomber? And that was pretty much it. But that was still amazing that they in their twenties know about this guy who now, that, you know, it's finished, it's over, he's in prison, he's been in prison for a long time because it's sort of a moniker for us, you know, of, of the Unabomber, what he's done, and, and he so, still has social relevance today, so but get to, back to the um, picture what it also did is it heightened people's alert, alertness to this you know, guy, now we knew it was a guy, not a gal and also that it probably wasn't a ton of people, it was just one person and also it showed, and this was interesting at the time, a willingness for the FBI, the great big mammoth of FBI, and I can say that because I'm a daughter of an FBI agent, worked with a million FBI agents, well not a million, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but <laughs> dozens of FBI yep. agents at, over my time as a federal prosecutor. So I'm kind of in, the, in that federal federal family. I can say that you know the mammoth FBI does not usually like to go to the public on then to and say hey public we need your help we need your help here here's this picture if you've seen anybody like this call us if you've got any leads call us because you know what we're kind of screwed here because we don't have i mean this leads. went on
0: for 20 years
1: that image. and uh
0: according yeah. according to your source which we'll talk about him in a moment this was almost a case where the uh, FBI said, well, we need to maybe just close this case because we can't solve this. I mean, that it literally got to that point, which...
1: This was a dog it, case. Yeah. it was a dog case. No agents wanted to be on this case. It wasn't getting solved. You weren't going to get the nice plaque, you know, on your wall for big case solved. You know, Attorney General gives you medal for, you know, the biggest case for the FBI, you know... People taken down, money brought in. You weren't getting any of that. The Unabomber case was a dog. No one wanted to get assigned to this case. It was going to be boring, mundane. You're going to have to go through your computer stuff. Ooh, yeah, computer stuff. FBI agents don't want to go through your computer stuff. They want to be out there, you know, busting down doors and knocking heads and doing stuff. And that wasn't going to happen with the Unabomber case. It, It didn't for 18 years. 18 years. Yeah, it's hard to believe that no it, went, it went it went on
0: safe. that it went on that long. Now tell us about the the manifesto. Um and and it, it, tell me if I'm if I'm I mean other than Hitler's uh manifesto, which I don't even know that it was actually officially called a manifesto, but this idea of killers writing these manifestos, did it start with with Ted Kaczynski because he demanded that his manifesto be published. And now we have other serial killers that write their manifesto. In other words, they want us to know how brilliant they are and why there's all this thought put in to why they're committing these crimes. And they want to sort of leave that legacy behind, uh, with whatever happens to them if they go to prison or die or face the death penalty. Tell us about this manifesto and he wanted this published um, and in exchange for that, what would he he was going to stop or, or what was the deal on that?
1: Well, he was going to stop sort of um, he was going to stop the bombing, but there might be a little sabotage. <laughs> so F.C. Wanted, the, wanted a manifesto published. And just to just to close up with a loop on what your last question too. Yes, the FBI was about to close the investigation. And um, because it had gone on so long, because it was such a dog case. And it was my source who told me that um, he really had to, he with a bunch of other agents had to fight headquarters in D.C. to keep the case open. Mm. And they fought the good fight. They kept the case open. And six months later, he bombed again. Can you imagine if they just closed down the case? And they didn't have the resources. They closed down the computerization. All of them closed down. I mean, it would just have been a disaster.
0: Yeah, and but have anyways, to restart all that up sure again. That, that, yeah.
1: Yeah, it would have been horrible. But anyway, so I, I didn't know that. That was kind of a real nugget that I found in this, in this research that, you know, one of the biggest cases, biggest manhunts in history, and they were going to close it down. Anyway, so yeah, to get the manifesto. So FC wanted this, um, manifesto published. And he said he wanted to publish in a paper of huge record, like, uh, the Washington Post or the New York Times. Penthouse came in and you know, said, uh, you know, we'll publish it. We'll publish it.
0: <laughs> Yeah, thanks, but no thanks.
1: And he wrote back, yeah, he wrote back a kind of funny thanks, but no thanks. It was almost kind of with a sense of humor, which was, which was, it, in con, you know, it wasn't funny at the time. We can sort of now laugh at it, but. But he really was like, no thanks. Um, But no, he wanted it in a a real, you know, paper of record. So here's the deal. What do they do? So I catalog in the the book this this meeting, because my source is is there, um, where you got the FBI, the heads, the biggest heads, FBI, the Attorney General of the United States, and the publishers of the Washington Post and the New York Times all in one room. And they're arguing about this. They're saying pretty much in agreement, no to publishing. Why? Exactly for the reason that you're just describing, which is that we don't bargain with, um, kidnappers, hostage takers. We don't bargain with people like this. And because it's just going to lead to ruin. And so the answer pretty much is, is no, because he wanted the manifesto published in full. And it was long. This was not like a paragraph that you write to your mom. I mean, this is a long thing. And so the beginning of the meeting really took that tenor of, no, we're not going to publish this. And it pretty much was going to end with that. Until one of the FBI profilers, Kathy Puckett, who had been following this and really... um to her credit and to a couple of other people, FBI folks in the room said, we get it. We understand you don't bargain with people like this. We understand that, that, that what this could do, but, and we don't, and we don't believe for a second that in his, you know, veracity that he's going to just stop the bombing. It's not for that, that we believe you should publish. We believe you should publish because if you publish we may get some clues from the publication because people will read it and people close to him will read it and they will recognize something in his writing. It's it's distinct enough, weird enough, whatever you want to call it, that there will be people that will read it and say, you know what? I know him. I think I know him. And they will call in and we'll get something because you know what people we don't have anything now. Our leads are zero. And this has gone on for all these many, many years. And we're nowhere. And this is our best chance of getting somewhere. And the conversation was very heated, as it's been described to me. But at the end, the publishers and the heads of the agency said, okay, uh, we'll do it. And they did. They decided to go with the Washington Post because it was a little bit smaller and because more controlled, especially in the San Francisco area, because they believed that the Unabomber most likely was in the San Francisco area and might have a chance of getting him because he might be so vain as to go to pick up the paper in bulk, maybe on the day that it came out. And they could be, you know, stationed in San Francisco. And all around that area to, to, you know, get him, to actually get him when he was get, went to get the paper. Like, you go get 10 copies, right? He'd be so excited to see his name, or not his name, but to see his writing. And so that's what they did. They were all stationed and there's some kind of interesting scenes about them tracking down different people and getting obviously the wrong person because Ted Kaczynski was nowhere near San Francisco when the, when the Washington Post actually published the manifesto. But, it did lead to really, really good clues, just like Kathy Puckett said. The sister-in-law, who was actually abroad, I think she was in, in Paris, France, read that day or next, when it came out, she read the manifesto. She'd never met Kaczynski. But remember those letters I was telling you about that he'd written to David about how horrible it was that he was getting married to her and how horrible she was, a woman he'd never met? Um, and all of this, she'd read those letters. She'd read them. David had shared them with her. And she said, You know, you need to read this manifesto. David,
0: <laughs> these letters, this sounds a lot the like these horrible letters, right? And that's,
1: it sounds and, like a lot. Yeah.
0: And what a moral dilemma so for the so brother. David, what a moral dilemma for that brother believed. to be in, right? Yeah. Because it's like, If you're if your family member is doing these horrible things, you obviously have to turn them in. But it's still your family member. And that right there is just an incredible dynamic. And you have to give him credit that he was not just willing to have that open mind that it could be his brother, um, but that he was willing to do the right thing, even though it was a family member. It must have been a heart wrenching decision for him to make uh but without him doing that totally. we, we would have never found this we probably never would have caught him is, is that what your your thought is
1: well remember what i said they they said it may take another 6 months but when they went in there to, the bomb technicians and again my main source went in there and uh was there and was you know saw got the corona typewriter that he was writing all the notes on and wrote the manifesto on he also found a live bomb so, yeah, maybe they would have caught him, caught him six months later, but there would have been bombs that would have gone off, yeah. gone off. So who knows how many other people would have died? And who knows whether they really would have gotten him six months later? I don't know. They don't really know. But yes. And when you say obviously turning him in, Jim, when you say he obviously had to turn him in, I don't know. I don't know that it's obvious that a blood relative would turn in another blood relative because... He didn't know that his brother was a Unabomber. There was just linguistic, you know, there's language that looked like it could have been yeah. similar to what his brother wrote. But I'm sure there are a lot of people that would have said, oh, but that, you know, my brother's a little weird, but he's up there in Lincoln. He's doing his thing. He's never like that. Yeah, he's a little weird, but he's a little antisocial, but he's not violent and mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do that. And it's my brother. So I don't think it's obvious, you know. I I think that took a lot of moral fortitude for him to he's a he's a hero. I mean and and then, you know, in the press that just like glommed on to him and and I followed him, he's always gonna be known as the person who turned his brother and then by the way, which is a good thing, but you know, still um, he went to the trial. His brother turned his back on him, wouldn't look at he or his mother or the sister-in-law. I mean, just obviously hates him. Uh, so it must have been and was a horrible thing. And, and I, I have a scene in there too where the FBI had to go tell Wanda, the mother. And of course, the mother didn't want to believe it, couldn't it believe it was her son. But can you imagine having to go and tell, you know, the mother? that we think your son may be the Unabomber that killed all, you know, all these people and injured, killed three, injured 23 over, you know, the course of 18 years and we're getting ready to arrest him. I mean, it's just horrible. And, and, and what a nice guy, by the way, I wrote, I wrote to David um in the course of researching his book and said, you know, would you, would you be willing to talk to me? And I didn't think that he would, but I thought, you know, as a good journalist, I want to try I have to tell you, he wrote me the nicest no letter. Okay. <laughs> it was, it, it wasn't no, it, it was a no letter, but he didn't just write no. It mm. was, you know, dear lease, I mean, I really love your work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I just, I just really can't. I've, I've, I've written about this. Um, I put my, you know, said what I'm going to say. I just can't go through it anymore. You know, but thank you so much for your kind letter and your best regards. I mean, I just thought, what a class. Yeah,
0: he seems, you You know, know, imagine living your life. Imagine living your life being the, the brother of the Unabomber, even when you do a Wikipedia search on the Unabomber and it brings up Ted Kaczynski. There's a highlighted reference to the brother David and you click on it and then it goes to David's Wikipedia and he's known as brother of the Unabomber. And then, of course, the they brother, uh, yeah, they friend. give him all the credit for, you know, what he did and all that. But still, you know, he'll be remembered as the brother of the Unabomber. Do we know what Ted Kaczynski's life is like in prison? I mean, obviously he's in one of those maximum security prisons. Right. And, and I know you're limited to like being out of your, out of your cell for one hour a day or something, but, uh, has anybody interviewed him since he's been in prison? Does he still do any writing about math or, uh, I mean a a guy with a mind like that, you think that just sitting in a cell, he's got to be doing something in there.
1: Yep. He does some correspondence. Um, I, there was one kind of famous one where Harvard asked him to the uh, a reunion, and he responded, you know, <laughs> uh, can't come. You know, he was like, that. here's where I am. It was one of those math mails. Wow. kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but he does some correspondence, and I, I I, wrote to him, and he never wrote me back, but, um, you know, not to be expected. Um, but I think he does, and I, it, it would be interesting. I would have loved to have gotten his take, for example, on, you know, the internet, social media, uh, zoom, all the things that we have to us now, because his whole point was the, what is to come? And he could have probably foreseen the internet and email and text and all yeah, If he hated
0: technology back yeah. in the in the seventies, eighties and nineties. Exactly. I mean, a lot of us oh, might I mean we're not God. gonna start building bombs, but you know, put your phone down at the dinner table or, you know, stop texting while you're Thank driving. Thank
1: you very much. Right. <laughs>
0: Thank
1: mean, you very much. Exactly. Stop texting while you're driving. He said you know, it's gonna it's gonna kill people. Well yeah, texting and driving does kill yeah. people. But, you know, it so so we may agree on a philosophical level, with some of the things, you know, the core things that he said, like too much technology is bad for you. Like it's bad for your eyes to be on your screen 24-7. It's bad for you to take your phone to a fancy restaurant, you know, with your your loved one and be you know texting through the dinner. And that's bad. but <laughs> We don't go build bombs, you know, to you, get the message
0: yeah. out there. Yeah, and I, I know, you know we're we're, we're making that's light of this, thing. but I mean it is true. I mean it is technology. And then we you know we're sitting here in the year 2020, and you know you and I are still fairly young. We might live another you know 30 years and. Who knows? I mean, we've already got, you know, robots roaming around the house vacuuming for us and I mean, who knows what's going to be next, you, you know? Uh, well, yeah, I
1: don't have, I, I, go to your house.
0: I don't have one, but the Roomba is something, you know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at oh, getting yeah, one. Yeah.
1: Those things scare me. Yeah. But I uh, might, I don't <laughs> know. My dogs, well, they need my cat.
0: Well, yeah, what well, my dogs would, would think about, you know, if I got a Roomba and it started, you know, trying to sweep and mop the floor, but tell us about in closing, I, I wanted to save this for last. Tell us about your your contact, which was uh, largely a way for you to get a lot of firsthand source information, uh, this FBI agent who, I guess, lived out the rest of his life in New Hampshire. Did he did he ultimately pass away of yeah. cancer? Uh, but tell us about him and how you yeah. how you met him and, and what information he was able to to help you to get. That was was really critical to this book.
1: Well, there's been, there's been so much written about the Unabomber. So I was intrigued with the, the subject just because longest hunt in, in FBI history. So great for a hunting series, right? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and as we talked about the subject, the subject himself, so interesting IQ off the charts. What, what, what made him twist? So, you know, but I had to get in like, what can I do that's new, different, extraordinary, different angle on this? And so I did my own little mini hunt and found this this uh, ex-retired FBI agent, Patrick Webb, and retired, living a bucolic life in New Hampshire with his wife, Florence, who's lovely. I did a a Zoom chat with her a week or so ago with some other uh, other FBI agents. And... um, and I just said to him, I kind of used my federal family key, not, not journalist key. I said, I'm a daughter of the FBI and a former federal prosecutor. You can't up the phone on me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he didn't. And I just said, Patrick, I want to tell the story in a, in a, in a different way. And I know that you were in charge of the unibomb investigation out of San Francisco. He had the, he had the task force there and that you're, you were the bomb technician, one of the bomb technicians that went into the cabin, the pictures of him there. He said, yeah. And, and, um, and I said, you know, what are your feelings on? It? He said, well, you know, one thing that kind of upset me is that, that, that discovery had just done a, uh, a mini series that had come out the summer before I made contact with them in 2018 and they kind of got it wrong. I mean, they had, they sort of put all the focus on this one agent who had befriended Kaczynski and, you know, solved the case, everything. That's not how it, how it happened. It was a team effort. We all did things. And this one agent actually never even met with Kaczynski. And I said, you know, yeah, that's the glory of TV. You know, they, <laughs> they try to sell it to an audience, you know, and unfortunately things get wrong like that. But I said, but, you know, with your help, I would need your help. Yeah, I'd love to get all of your original sourcing and your your hours of your time. I would like to tell the story from, you know, what really happened from you and, and your other sources that you can get me to. And he said, Lisa, okay, I'll do it. And it was amazing. Did he, he have to get FBI approval? At to, the time.
0: Did he have to get FBI he approval? He was retired. Okay.
1: He was retired and he was dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew he was dying at the time of pancreatic cancer. So mm. whether or not he needed to get FBI approval, I don't know. I didn't ask. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. he just, <laughs> um, he just helped me and he helped me get to the other sources like Kathy Puckett, who I just mentioned to you, the profiler mm. and uh, postal service. And they loved him. They loved Patrick and he helped me through to the end. I mean, um, and I've actually dedicated the book to him.
0: Wow. He, great. He, he
1: was amazing. And it, it was through him that I was able to tell the story through original um, sourcing, original eyes, and in a way that will really can't be done again because that's it, it, gone. Yeah. Know, but, and I'm holding the book up here
0: for people watching on the video feed. It is uh, uh, it's available. I'm, I was looking at it on a- Amazon earlier. It's available in a lot of formats. Yeah. So it's Kindle. It's audiobook through Audible. It's also available on. I read the
1: audio. I read the oh, audio. Oh, you did. Okay,
0: that's that's <laughs> I tremendous. I always do my own audio, and people love that. I always tell authors read your own, even if it's struggle. You struggle to do it. It's worth it because people people love that. It's hard to do. It really is. And there's a hardcover version. It's
1: hard a paperback version yes. and
0: also the audio cd so with the holidays coming up um if you have someone in your family that likes true crime the book is called Hunting the Unabomber. and Lisa uh, tell us if you have uh, i know you have a website and also what other projects that you have who else are you hunting <laughs> right now um,
1: yeah my my website <laughs> my, my website is com. just my name and books at pluralbooks.com okay I'm W-I-E-H-L-L-I-S. Um, my parents are too poor to afford the A, but they tell everybody uh. it's, a, it's a Danish name. Um, and, yes, I am working very hard on the next book. Um, fast, absolutely, it's, it's so intensely fascinating for me. Um, and this person is just as intriguing, very culturally relevant to absolutely today historical nonfiction and I'm and we're hard at work at the hunt um even with the pandemic go and go ongoing people have been home a lot yeah with time on their hands ex, except and CIA agents and things like that so um I've been able to do a lot of interviews which has been great
0: so this is um, going to be another really, hunting really, great, really amazing story. another t- hunting series book is that right
1: I don't think we're going to call it hunting because the name of the person is not well known. Okay. So I think we're coming up with a different title for it, but it's that same idea. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, I'm sure it'll be fascinating if, if you're writing about it. Um, and I'll give you, and I'm not, I don't want you to give away who, who it is because I know you're trying to hold that close to your vest, but I'll tell you yes. one, I'll tell you one case that I'm fascinated in that I would love to someday okay. have okay. you on and talk about is, Um, this Las Vegas shooting, which um, I still don't feel that... There's we know anything about that. I mean, there's so many questions about that case that bother me. For example, that ABC News had reported that there were literally hundreds of suspicious financial transaction reports made by the casinos about this guy. But yet there's no history of any IRS investigation into the guy. Uh, It's it's like some something's not doesn't add up that he was just this guy who went there and did this. And then all of the stuff that came out about all the money he had and multiple properties and that he made all this money playing, playing blackjack, uh, video games. I, I don't believe any of that. And I'm, j- maybe I'm just a crazy conspiracy guy, but. I, you know, I'm thinking maybe I'll be the one to write that book because I know friends that live in Las Vegas. We've had a private investigator on that was involved as an investigator for the law firm that represented the victims of that case. We had the lawyer on who was the right. head, head lawyer for all those victims, and that case just settled recently. But we still don't know like what what happened there with that guy. So I, you would be the one to do that book. So I'm just throwing that out to you as a. As I'm a,
1: just. I, I, I'm am taking notes. I just took a bunch of notes as you as you were talking. Just just <laughs> an, just
0: an idea because I'll, I'll tell you it's it's just too many questions about about that and you know the uh, there's there's never a shortage of JFK books right and that, that's another one for you to, to do at some point. But least wheel, thank you so much for being with us. We hope you let us know when thank the next book so comes much. out. And uh, oh, you know I will. Yeah. You now this your Manson book is going crazy. On we've been replaying it on our live feed a bunch and people love it a lot of uh-huh. great feedback on that so i'm sure we'll get similar feedback oh, here on the unabomber
1: good.
0: so thank you so much for being oh, with us
1: dude. absolutely let me know and let me know uh, to what i can do because i'll i'll put it on my facebook um, oh yeah yeah facebook i will i'll, so I'll have our producer
0: Alex. yeah we've got this new thing where because i'm now live on video also so i've got this new uh server that i've contracted with so with the server I can now take a live show like what people are watching right now, and I can rebroadcast this at, as live. 24 7 whenever I choose to over all of my different social media platforms so I've actually rebroadcast your Manson one maybe 50 times so far and uh every time it rebroadcast it gets a ton of views and ton of chat comments and things like that so it's kind of something new that's happening I feel kind of weird about it though because like when you're live you're supposed to be live but this is legit it's Facebook approved this this arrangement with this company called Restream, and I'm able to, even though I'm live on Sunday nights, I'm actually live now every night. <laughs> so with I play a lot of my that's, best of just, older shows and put them out there, and it's kind of like owning my own uh, TV channel. So uh, who knows what the future is. Oh, I
1: love is. it. But, yeah. but, let, but let me know. Give me links or something like yeah. that so I can put it up, uh, you know, and and put it up on my social media, and we kind of promote it that way as well. So that we'll do it. On Facebook, and no know, know how to get to it that would be great, and not, I'm ha- not sure they they know about it so have
0: a great yeah. ho- have a great holiday, and we hope to uh hear from hey. you uh soon when the new book comes out. Thank you so much for being with us hey. Lise, Lise wheel great guest i I love having her on she's a uh, great to talk to, and um i I jump in there with my questions and comments as well, and she's okay with that, so that's great as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.